Now, good morning, good morning, and um, as you know that we just celebrated Thanksgiving, right? And as, as I was eating, as I was on the Thanksgiving table, I mean, there are a lot of thankful things that, that I was counting, and I literally wrote down maybe a couple of hundred things that, that, that I was really, really grateful. But, you know, um, I'll be honest with you, um, you know, that having a heart of thanksgiving, you know, all the time, it's not so very easy. You know, 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says, Give thanks in all the circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. But, but, I have to admit that having a heart of thanksgiving all the time, really, really is difficult. Um, last Monday, um, I was driving up to Tahoe on my vacation, and I was, I was filled with excitement, and I was feeling joy, I was feeling ecstatic, and, and all of a sudden I received a text message from my brother uh, saying that my mom has colon cancer. So having a heart of thanksgiving really isn't easy all the time. I mean, it's one of those moments when you're feeling really, really high, and then life just pulls the carpet right from under your feet. And life does that to you. At one moment, you're feeling on top of the world, and in the next minute, you're feeling discouraged, dilapidated, because of a certain circumstances has changed. So with that thought, I want to ask you this morning, I want to start off today's God's Word by asking you a, a very simple question. How many of you guys have ever been discouraged? Raise your hand. Okay, good. I, I know that I'm talking to the right choir. Right? We've all been discouraged. You know, we've all had our letdowns. Now, some of you guys have no idea or, or you don't know what I'm talking about. I read a survey this week that started, that got my attention, and this is how it started. When you wake up in the morning and you know it's going to be a bad day when you turn on the morning news and they're displaying emergency routes out of your city. Your boss calls you to tell you not to bother coming in this morning. Your horn gets stuck following a group of hell angels' motorcycles. Or, this is my favorite, when you jump out of bed and you miss the floor completely. Now, I don't know how you could do that, but that was one of the surveys. And when you step on your weight scale after maybe a Thanksgiving dinner, and your weight scale reads tilt. Or, this is another funny one too, when you call the suicide prevention center and they put you on hold. And the excerpt concludes, some people think it's difficult to be a Christian and to feel joyful. You know, not only having a heart of thankfulness is contagious, But having a heart that complains and grumbles can also be contagious too. 
You remember in Numbers 11.1, the people complained about their hardships in the wilderness, right? The Israelites soon forgot what their life was like in Egypt, life of slavery. And they started to what? They started to grumble. And God heard it. And the journey that was supposed to last only for 11 days, the Israelites, the first generation of Israelites, took 38 years and 10 months wandering around the wilderness. Instead of having a heart of gratitude, their hearts turned sour. You know, someone really, really famous once said, if you have no joy... There is a leak in your faith somewhere. If you have no joy, there is a leak in your faith somewhere. Now, let me put that phrase in another way. And this is a challenge that I want to ask you this morning. What does it take to steal your joy? Think about this. What does it take to steal your joy? As I was about to go to Tahoe for my vacation, I was ecstatic, I was excited, but a, a news, a certain news of my mom's illness stole my joy. Now, could it be that the spiritual maturity can be measured by what it takes to steal our joy? Could it be that, that one of the spiritual maturity can be measured by what it takes to steal our joy. I mean, think about it. Just a few days ago, sitting around your Thanksgiving table, enjoying, laughing, giggling, feasting, and now for some reason, because of a certain circumstances has changed, some of us who are sitting in this room might be feeling, you know, I don't really feel joyful. I'm feeling discouraged. I'm distraught. So then ask yourself once more, how easily is my joy taken away? And by what? Believe me, because you know what? There are so many things in life that could really, really challenge our joy. Circumstances can. People can. And I don't like this one, but you know what? I'm going to say it. Even churches can. You know, everyday problems, overwork, sin, doubt, diseases, chronic pains. I mean, these are just few of the many things that could really, really challenge our joy. You know, as I was graduating from seminary, one of my mentors told me, and he told me a lot of good things, then um, joy and unhappiness are two separate things. And like, I'm going, okay. I mean, I was only like 22 years old. And I asked, why? And he told me, because happiness depends on the happenings. I still remember that because it's a little cliche. Happiness depends on the happenings. See, you'll be happy if this or that is in my life. Now, think about this. When was the last time you were feeling so happy? I was feeling happy when I was about to go to Tahoe for my vacation. I was happy because of a certain circumstances. And because of these things, my happiness scale will go up and down because happiness depends on the happenings. 
You know, I mean, you wake up in the morning and you feel like the happiest person because of a certain circumstances, but the next morning, you wake up feeling so miserable because the sun did not rise in your life. Or you jump out of bed and you just completely missed the floor. But joy is different. Joy is different from happiness. Because joy is pervasive, it's deep, and it's constant. Now, you don't have to believe me. And maybe some of you guys, you don't believe me. But let me prove it to you. I think the, un, the most unhappiest person in the New Testament should have been who? Paul. I mean, just take a look at his circumstances, his past and his current. And we find that in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And I'm going to read to you his circumstances. He says, You know I have worked hard, but I have been put in jail more often. I have been whipped many times without numbers, faced death and again and again. Five different times the Jews gave me 39 lashes. Three times I've been beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent a whole night and day adrift at sea. I have traveled many weary miles. I have faced danger from flooded rivers, from robbers. I have faced danger from my own people, the Jews, as well as from the Gentiles. I faced danger in the cities, the desert, the stormy seas. I have faced danger from men who claim to be Christian but are not. I have lived with weariness, pain, and sleepless nights. I have been, been hungry, thirsty, I'm gone without any food. Now, <laughs> this one, I, I kind of paused. I've been hungry, thirsty, have gone without food. Man, if Paul was part of our congregation, man, he was very, very, very discouraged. Often, have been, uh, often I have been shivered with cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. Then besides all of this, I have the daily burden of how the churches are getting along. I don't know about you, but I don't think there would be anybody... Anyone who would have opposed, Paul, forget it, man. If you're going to throw in the towels, I wouldn't blame you. Paul, if you walk away from all this right now, I would certainly understand. And no wonder there's a leak in your Christianity. There's no joy in your life. And Paul, this letter we're about to read in the book of Philippians He's writing from prison. He's a prisoner of Rome. I mean, there were not the best conditions that he has ever been in, nor was this the happiest place that he has been either. But, but, the thought of joy permeates. Paul is physically bounded. Paul's ministry is severely restricted, and yet the theme of this book is what? Joy. And this letter is oozing with joy all over. Four chapters, 104 verses, and one major theme is the song that we sang this morning, the first song, Joy. I will sing joy. I will sing joy. I can just imagine, as I sang that first song, just, just imagining Paul in prison, writing a letter to the Philippians, singing this, I, will, I am feeling this joy. 
Now, so then, what was his secret? What made Paul so joyful when everything around him seemed so dismal and dispirited? Well, his secret is found in today's verse. In chapter 1, verse 12 through 14, actually, it's found in verse 12. And now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. You see, Paul had a passion in life. I mean, passion seems to be very a popular question these days also, right? Hey, hey, what is your passion? What is your passion, Josh? Pastor Ben, what is your passion? Because Paul had one. He had this one gigantic passion. If you know anything about Paul the Apostle, you know he was a pretty determined guy. He's a kind of a guy that we would call a type A personality, highly motivated with single focus, and generally people like that are very, very highly successful because they never quit, because they never throw in the towels, and they readily give up. Now, everyone in this room, including all of us, right, we all have a one master passion. What drives us? What's, what, does, what does your mind think of when, it, when, when everything is neutral? When, when there is nothing going on? All the activities are gone. What is one thing above everything that you want or seek for or want to do more than anything else? And right now, some of you guys are thinking, okay, Netflix, this, 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 this. You, you want to know what Paul's passion was? It, it could be summed up. In, in by these two words in verse 12, the gospel. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. The gospel, that very message, the good news of God in love, what Christ has done, that he bore our sin on the cross, he bore the penalty, turned, asked, or turn aside God's judgment, God's wrath from us, and he cancels sin. And the brokenness of our lives restored, shadow relationships he rebuilt, and the new life that we find in Christ Jesus is granted out of the sheer grace of God. It is received by faith as we repent of our sins, as we turn to Jesus, as we confess to him as Lord and Savior, and we bow down before him joyfully. Passion of Paul was the gospel. And you want to know how much of this was on Paul's mind? Just look at the previous verses in chapter 1. In verse 5, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Verse 7, I have set you in my heart as much as both in my chains in the defense of the confirmation of the gospel. You are partakers with me. Now, verse 12, I already told you, verse 12, advancement of the gospel. Verse 17, but the latter out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. Look at verse 27. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So whether I come and see you in an absent, I may be able to hear your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Gospel. 
I mean, this is only in just one chapter. If you were to add up all the times in Paul's writings, he he mentions the word gospel 72 times. Gospel, 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 gospel. It's like, how, how are you, Paul? The gospel. What are you up to? The gospel. What do you want in life? The gospel. What are you doing? The gospel. The gospel was his greatest passion. And now some of you guys say, hey, Pastor Ben, you know what? That's too much. You know, just, just kind of don't carry it away. Maybe it's only in this one book, the book of Philippians. No, 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 no. If you know anything about Paul. I, I want you to go to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1, verse 15, where he says, As much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel. Here we go again. To you who are in Rome. Do you get that language? As much as is in me, to the fullest extent of my being, that's what I want. The gospel. You know, also in Romans 15, 20, he says, It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known so that I will not be building on someone else's foundation. Now, you know what? What I want you to do is I want you to substitute the word passion where it says, and I want you to put the word ambition. So it always has been my passion to preach the gospel where Christ is not known, lest I build on another man's foundation. The passion for this man was surrounded by these two words, the gospel. Now, for a little harder question, why do you think the gospel was his passion? You ever thought of that? Because he's the most prevalent character in the New Testament, but why was Paul's passion the greatest passion for the gospel. I mean, why would the gospel, at one time he tried to, with all of his might, to stop. Do you remember, right, Paul, before the conversion? Be now his passion now. I mean, remember Paul, you know, he sat around putting out the fires of the gospel, wherever he went, right? Keeping it from spend, uh, spreading so much that while on the road to Damascus, the very thing that he hated, the gospel. But then why was this his greatest passion now? Simple. Because the gospel was the only thing that allowed him to be changed. Gospel was the only thing, and nothing else could do, nothing else did. But on that road to Damascus, when he saw that light, when he heard that voice, when he had received Jesus into his life, he was never the same. He was forever a changed man. Now, this is very important. Because until you've experienced the gospel power, you will never be able to fully understand the gospel mission. 
Let me repeat that. Until you experience the gospel power, you will never be able to fully understand the gospel mission. For those who have seen it, felt it, experienced the power of the gospel in their own lives, can truly understand the passion of the gospel, not only living in me, but in living in other people's. You know, William Booth once said, some man's passion is for the gold. Some man's passion is for the art. Some man's passion is for fame. But my passion is for the lost souls. And that's why, now do you know who William Booth is? Yes, no. He's the one who started the Salvation Army. And when we started the star station, uh, when he started the Salvation Army, he started for one passion: to reach the lost souls. You, you know, the idea of the gospel was so prevalent in Paul's life. If you were to tell me, hey, you know, what do you think Paul's model was? Like, there's one kind of a cliche, a verse that that he could say. I would probably pick Romans chapter 1, verse 16. And this is a, it's a very famous verse that all of you guys may. And if I tell you, you probably say, oh yeah, that verse. I, I think this is his model of, of his entire life. And Romans 1, 16 says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation to anyone who believes. Paul's greatest passion for life was the gospel because he had seen it, lived out, and had seen its power. He saw what the gospel could do in his own life. Now, let me go back to the question that I threw out. What does it take to steal your joy? You know, looking at Paul, incarceration can steal your joy. Restriction of any kinds could rob us of our joy. Confinement of any sort would definitely steal our joy. Some of us who are chained to a certain job and it feels like you're, you're, you're tied up, stressed up, it could rob us of your joy. You know, I, I read somewhere and just, just thought of this, it's not Mondays that you hate. It's the job that you go into Monday that you hate. Some of us feel chained to a relationship or set of responsibilities that maybe it feels kind of restricting and you don't feel very, very joyful. Or maybe a sickness in the family or maybe an ongoing chronic pain that you're dealing with. Maybe all of these or maybe a combination of all these. And that's why some of our passion is gone. Maybe that's why there's a leakage in our belief. And sometimes our faith is all dried up. And I feel like if that's what Paul is saying today, he's saying is something very, very revolutionary. And this is, I feel like we need to kind of put our ears and listen now, first was the passion, right? 
First was the passion, the gospel. Now he reveals the perspective, how Paul views all, all the things that has happened to him. Now, before I go on, I want to kind of review. What is the theme of this letter? Three letter, J-O-Y, joy, right? Sixteen times the letter writes joy, rejoice, or the word rejoicing are found in the book of Philippians, right? We all know. And we've already seen the object of Paul's joy, which is the gospel. And we've seen the challenges to Paul's joy, the thing that has happened or happened Prison, beating, and all these things. Now, let me reveal to you the reason for his joy. That could be summed up in just a single word in verse 12 again. I want you to go back. Verse 12, I want you to know that, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance. Sitting in Rome prison, he doesn't have the freedom to go out and plant churches, right? Or to share the gospel, train up leaders. He's stuck. He's confined. He's restricted. And then you know, you know what? Paul is in Rome. But did you know he always wanted to go to Rome? That, that was part of his passion too. He wanted to go to Rome and preach the gospel. But, but, but that's not exactly how he got there. But if you remember in Rome 15, Romans 15, 32, pray for me that I may go to you with joy there again by the will of God that I be able to refresh you two together. So his passion was to go to Rome, but he's actually locked up in Rome now. That's not exactly how he ended up in Rome, but he's there in prison. And in this imprisonment, which happens to him, actually turned out And this is what he says. It turned out for the advancement or the furtherance of the gospel, he says. Now, I want to give you this kind of a Greek kind of a theology class. Now, this word advancement or furtherance in Greek means a very, very unique word. It means a forward movement in spite of obstacles. This word was used by pioneers cutting through their ways of all the brushwoods, cutting undergrowth away so that you could actually go through it. Oh, it was also used for soldiers, right? Advancing through many, many obstacles, the enemies. And sometimes it was also used as a nautical term for ships making headways when there was like a headwind or obstacles, tornado storms. Now, I want you to get this idea. There will always be an obstacle involved. It's this ongoing moving forward, forward in the midst of these obstacles. And so Paul wants us to know, I want you to know, brothers, that all things that happened to me, incarceration, the beating, mistrials, further incarceration, I'm sorry, incarcerations. But none of this has stopped the advancement of the gospel. In fact, it actually cleared the way. It has furthered, it had made progress. Now, if you are like me, how? Paul, how? You may ask. Now, I want you to look at verse 13. As a result, 
It has become clear throughout the whole palace guards and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Now, not only was the gospel further to the Roman soldiers, but God's plan was bigger. It wasn't just the Roman soldiers. It was actually bigger. It had become evident now. Watch this. It's not just an ordinary soldier's but it was actually the whole palace guard. Now, this word is referring to the praetorian guard, where we get the word praetorium. And you guys know, some of you guys who are, you know, Roman history buffs, the praetorian guards were the elite personal soldiers for the emperor. And there were about 10,000 of them in the Roman Empire. Now, they were the, the bodyguards of the emperor. Paul is incarcerated, but somehow he's attached to the palace. Now, he's not in the palace, actually. He's actually in, in a rented home. Now, we know this because the book of Acts tells us, right? He's chained to a guard 24 hours in a, in a rented house. He's chained. People are chained to him. Who are what? Who? They're the Praetorian guards. In, in layman's term. He was chained to the secret service who actually guards the president. In 2005, I got invited to the White House. Not exactly the White House, okay? I don't remember which room, but we were actually underneath the White House somewhere, right? And I met a lot of these pastors who got together to do just one thing and one thing alone. One thing, that's it, was to pray for the president. I thought it was pretty neat. And I believe that time I, we were praying for President W. President w. Bush. You know, yesterday um, as we were listening to the groomsmen, the bridegrooms, and best men, and, and I actually heard Christine. You guys know who Christine Lum is, right? And she was saying, you know, how she and Caitlin got so close. When she needed someone to pray for her, <laughs> from the upper bunk, Caitlin came down, right? I thought it was pretty funny, but you know what? As, as I, was, I was listening, I, I thought of, you know what? I mean, I really believe praying for someone, right? Out of your own time, making time to pray for someone, to drive to go and to be able to pray for someone, I think that's the greatest gift. You know, when I first became a believer, I had this one crazy, seriously, I had this one crazy thought, you know what? I would love to pray for the president. I'm serious. Look, like I had this dream, like, you know what, I would lay my hand on the president's, you know, head or shoulder or whatever, right? That, that was one of the dreams. And, you know, in 2005, and God actually allowed that to happen. Now, I, I didn't meet the president. I didn't lay my hand on the president, but I actually was praying for the president with all these, you know, all these pastors. Now, now here, check this out. Now, I'm, I'm just guessing, okay? I'm just kind of, my imagination is going, right? Now, somebody in the church of Rome, when they, when they got together initially, right, and there's a praying and, and crazy, the gospel is changing people's lives, and I, I could just imagine one few people, right, and say, you know what? It would be so radical if we could actually pray for this, this, this leader who's persecuting us, right? Wouldn't it be so great if we could actually get the gospel, right, to, 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 to the, the, the palace where the Caesar lives? Like, I'm, I'm just imagining. Okay? It's not in the Bible, okay, guys? I, I can just imagine these few 
uh, you know what, ladies, okay, it's, it's always ladies. They're getting together, how the advance, this amazing power of the gospel, and, and they just realize, wouldn't it be so great if they could actually get the gospel? And but they realized, they realized, there is no way, man, there is no way they could actually go into the palace, go through these 10,000 praetorian guards, and to be able to really, really spread the gospel to the Caesar who's persecuting them. Some of these passionate people were, were praying for the advancement of the gospel, and all of a sudden, God says, okay, I'll answer your prayer. Okay, here we go. And you may ask, how? And God's answer is, by Paul's chains. Now, I don't know about you, but the idea of the furtherance of the gospel to every nation makes me so joyful. But the idea that, you know, when I got you, you ever get answer to your prayer that you've been praying for such a long time and God answers that you feel so ecstatic what feels in your life joy Paul was trained to these praetorian guards and I want you to picture this what it looks like they're chained to Paul the apostles for six hours that's how he worked there are 24 hours a day. There are four soldiers chained every six hours at a time. Paul couldn't eat without being chained. He couldn't sleep without being chained. Everything he did for 24 hours, he was chained to these praetorian guards. Now, before I understood this, I would read Philippians chapter 1, verse 12, 12 to 14. It says, you know what? Poor Paul. You got it hard, brother. I mean, you're in chains. You're incarcerated. You're in prison. But now, realizing that it's all part of the furtherance of the gospel. You see, Paul was chained to the guards. But so were the guards, too. I don't know about you, but you know what? That brought me so joy. If if this is true, if what I just told you for the last 35 minutes is so true, then why is it that we express it so little? I mean, if the gospel of Jesus Christ and the furtherance of the gospel was Paul's passion and Paul's perspective for overcoming his circumstances that lead to joy, then why do we express it so little. During your Thanksgiving dinner, maybe, but how many of you guys sat and you prayed? Now, we were praying for everything, right? The health, the wealth, and I'm sure, right? Your neighbor's dog and, you know, whatever, right? But how many of you guys how many of us prayed for the gospel of Jesus Christ? 
not only changed who I was, but the power that could change. Not only the people, neighborhood, the cities, the communities, the states, the countries, but into the nations. Why is it that if we know this to be true, to bring us joy, true joy, I told you joy is what? Deep, pervasive, it's constant. Happiness happens to be the happenings, but this joy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I feel guilty too, guys. In the midst, I feel so guilty too, but it's true. If what Paul is saying is so true, we express it so little in our lives. I want to throw back the question, what does it take to steal your joy? Well, Paul reveals the secret of having this joy. And, and, and I'm praying, I'm hoping, I'm hoping that the gospel of Jesus Christ will be oozing, permeating through our church. And as people come and listen, they'll be able to see Jesus Christ, not me, not you, but Jesus Christ to be revealed. You know, a lot of the people who yesterday saw Caitlin and Stephen's wedding, it's a little glimpse of heaven, but I know that heaven is going to be much better, much bigger, granular. But it was such a blessing yesterday. I've been to so many weddings. I've done, you know, a couple of weddings, but it was probably one of my top five. Why? Stephen and Caitlin said, it's the the gospel, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the gospel and that changed not only myself into a new creation, but I ask in the name of Jesus that would you give me this, give us this perspective of guiding because in, in a darkened world, the light penetrates. Father God, I ask in the name of Jesus, would you allow us, Father God, to know the importance of the gospel, which yet we just express it so little. And I pray in the name of Jesus that we would, our ministry, our church, will be able to do that into the, every nation's, every corners of this world. Father God, I thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.